yes, uh, what a week. And um, well, where to begin? Um, I suppose you could begin with um, somewhat uh, trite uh, observation that this, um, I'm talking obviously about Boris Johnson, uh, that uh, the fall of Boris Johnson has been a long time uh, coming. Um, I mean, we've had a whole series of um, different scandals and um, accusations and uh, all the rest of it. But I actually thought that it was um, worthwhile uh, going back um, a little bit further. Um, this is the man, well, the man, the boy, when he was a boy, who um, wanted to rule the world. So here was someone who was uh, driven um, from a very early age, you know, by ambition. Um, I don't know when he decided to become prime minister, uh, but that would go way back. And it's interesting for someone my age um, who came through, um, how should I put it, a particular period in politics where we were told uh, that not only did capitalism uh, no longer exist, but all the class distinctions that had characterised, you know, Victorian uh, Britain uh, were coming to an end. You know, we had the grammar school boy, uh, Edward, i.e. Ted Heath, as prime minister. Um, he alternated with um, Harold Wilson, another grammar school uh, boy. And that very much was the future uh, that we were told to expect. And therefore, if you look at David Cameron, I'll leave that one aside. But certainly if we look at uh, Boris Johnson, Eton, and uh, then Balliol, um, Oxford. Um, and, you know, a, a typical upper class um, um, individual, um, someone who became speaker of the Oxford Union, um, and that takes a great deal of work, not talking about chairing the damn thing, I'm talking about being elected. So he had to go on a, a charm uh, offensive and he was successful in getting himself elected. And this was clearly not about uh, being a chair of the um, Oxford um, Union. This was about his political career. This was about making contacts that would come in useful uh, later. And um, what did we see? An MP um, in 2001. And nothing, you know, remarkable so far, you know, in terms of um, Eton, Oxbridge, and then, you know, into politics. What is remarkable is um, then going on and becoming mayor of London. That was in 2008. He resigned his uh, seat, having been successful uh, in that bid. And London, you know, has a reputation, or at least Londoners like myself, I suppose, like to believe that London is a progressive city. And I have to confess, you know, one of my many <laughs> political failings is to get certain elections disastrously uh, wrong. And I just couldn't believe that London uh, would elect uh, Boris uh, Johnson. It's a bit like, uh, you know, when I first looked at the Republican lineup, um, you know, for the presidential 
election and there was uh, Trump there. And uh, my basic reaction was, well, I can imagine Trump doing well, but I can't imagine the establishment, you know, um, doing anything other than sabotage him and, and stop him running in the same way that, you know, Bernie Sanders initially was successful. And you just knew, at least you think you knew, I thought I knew, uh, that the Republican establishment would do what the Democrat uh, establishment did to Bernie Sanders. But anyway, uh, there we are. So he, well, there's London. Why did people elect uh, this guy? Well, my explanation for what it's worth, and um, it ain't worth very much, is that at least in British culture, there's this uh, figure of uh, the right-wing uh, buffoon, the right-wing clown, and they're not actually a buffoon, they're not actually a clown, uh, but they have that persona, and uh, you have a situation of where people like an upper-class fool. Uh, they laugh with him uh, as opposed uh, to at him. Uh, you, you, you do get that phenomenon um, from below. It's just that it's not usually a very successful political formula. If you think back, for those of you who are damned old enough, and there'll be very few here that are, if you remember, there was a, a series um, on British TV, on BBC, called um, Till Death Do Us Part. And uh, the particular character I'm thinking, obviously, was Alf Garnet. And this was written by, you know, a left winger. Um, constant references um, in, in the programme to left-wing themes and causes, but Alf Garnett was a right-wing bigot. And uh, interestingly, while some people laughed at him, which was the intention of the writer, I think it was Johnny Spake, from my memory, was the writer, uh, an awful lot of people laughed with him. You know, so when he was making racist jokes, uh, the response would be, well, it's just a joke. Uh, and I think you had something of that uh, with Boris Johnson. So Boris Johnson could get away with things uh, that other politicians couldn't get away with. So when Michael Howard, you know, had that advertising, he was a, a failed leader of the Tory party, but he had a, an advertising campaign that went on. We know what you're thinking. And the idea was this, we know what you're thinking, you daren't say it. This was the subtext uh, to this advertising campaign. It didn't work, but with Boris Johnson, it did work. And therefore, he not only got elected uh, mayor of London in 2008, he was re-elected uh, in 2012. And of course, this set his stage uh, for his comeback uh, as an MP. Uh, we all know um, that uh, as a cabinet uh, member, he participated in, uh, you know, discussions uh, around the question of the Brexit referendum. This was uh, his old mate, uh, fellow Oxford um, student, David Cameron. And David Cameron was threatened from the right um, by Nigel Farage and decided that the best way to deal with this uh, was to go for a referendum. And he calculated quite rightly uh, that this would um, do more damage to the Labour Party than it would to the Tory party. But of course, what he found himself uh, with is what he didn't expect. And that's first of all, 
allies, close allies, such as uh, Boris Johnson deciding at the last moment uh, to actually campaign for the Brexit side uh, of the um, um, argument. And the second thing uh, that David, David Cameron didn't calculate on, which is going to call a referendum, make sure you get the wording right, make sure that you win. <laughs> Referendums aren't there to lose. They're not really about testing public opinion and letting the masses uh, decide. It's something that people use to manipulate public opinion. And uh, to his own shock, he found himself losing. Um, and then what happens nowadays is that, of course, politicians step down, uh, they uh, fall on their own sword. And we saw the election of the hapless uh, Theresa May, and uh, we saw her um, going for a general election of where instead of um, her thumping uh, the Labour Party at the time led, of course, by Jeremy Corbyn, the opposite happened and uh, Jeremy Corbyn did brilliantly well, didn't win, uh, but nonetheless, the real victor uh, in that uh, general election was the Labour Party, crucially um, Corbyn, and Theresa May was reduced to a minority government and had to come to an arrangement with the Democratic um, Unionist Party uh, from the six uh, counties. Anyway, the long and the short of it was that after a whole series of humiliating uh, rebellions in the House of Commons, I think she had the biggest uh, parliamentary vote against her in the entire history uh, of the House of Commons. It was, of course, time for her to fall on her sword. Uh, and it was time uh, for Boris Johnson uh, to take up the mantle. He did previously run, of course, um, against uh, Theresa May and was betrayed by um, another um, old friend of his. Um, but uh, we, won't, we won't bother with that one. Suffice to say, um, what he did to the um, Parliamentary Conservative Party should have been a model uh, for Jeremy Corbyn. Instead of uh, placating it, instead of trying to, um, how should it, uh, bring it around, he purged it. And um, I think he actually um, took the whip away uh, from 21 um, MPs. There were defections. Um, either way, he uh, lost his majority. And we saw arguments you know, about closing Parliament down. We saw arguments with the High Court. Uh, either way, Boris Johnson steamrolled through uh, went for a general election, let's get Brexit done, smashed uh, the Labour Party uh, and was returned um, as Prime Minister with um, an 80 uh, majority. So there he was riding high, um, his ambitions uh, fulfilled. And of course, uh, what, was the, what was the actual figures? Uh, there we are, 43.6%. Um, um, of the uh, electorate uh, voted uh, Tory. What was the calculation um, in terms of Brexit? Well, in my own view, um, it's very hard to separate, you know, individual ambition here with grand strategy. But I think mainly what we were dealing with uh, was individual uh, ambition. You know, Boris Johnson was determined to become prime minister. He didn't start off on the basis of um, 
some sort of view that the you know the, the United Kingdom had become a colony of the EU, that only Britain could be free. This was all about ambition, and uh, I, I think from the interests of British capitalism, um, you know, brexiting, let alone a hard uh, Brexit um, that he pushed through. You had Theresa May's uh, Brexit; it was a soft uh, Brexit. Um, that was, you know, what Johnson was voting against. But again, not because uh, this is a soft Brexit, but because he wanted to become prime minister. Um, so he went for a hard uh, Brexit and fought the general election um, um, on that basis. And the only, how should I put it, um, kernel of uh, sense, at least as far, far as I'm concerned uh, with Brexit, is the determination to align um, Britain um, ever more deeply uh, with the United States. And that could be Donald Trump's United States, or it could be Joe Biden's uh, the United States. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. That has a certain sense. Um, but as I said, you know, economically speaking, um, Brexit doesn't make uh, sense. And the idea uh, that Britain is now a genuinely autonomous um, country. Well, no, it's um, subordinated as it's uh, been, um, you know, since at least 1945, you could argue since 43, doesn't really matter, but it's subordinate to the United States. Uh, that's actually its position. But what it does, it enjoys the position of number one um, ally. That's what Britain is uh, in relationship uh, to the United States. So it's not wrong when people uh, talk about the special relationship, but of course what we're talking about isn't the United States viewing it as a special relationship. This is a British view of its alliance with the United States. Okay, worthwhile talking a bit about Johnson's achievements and were they? Um, he likes to parrot, uh, or at least um, trumpet might be a better word, and, you know, the line about COVID-19 and the vaccination program. And the vaccination program was remarkably successful. Rolling out the vaccines was, um, again, a fantastic achievement. But personally, uh, I think it was um, scientists and drug companies. Uh, in particular, in Britain, we had um, the Oxford uh, AstraZeneca um, vaccine developed in remarkable uh, speed and rolled out. Um, and again, I don't know what your experience was. My experience was that uh, the person that uh, vaccinated me, I think she was um, an estate agent. They've been training up all manner uh, of um, volunteers uh, to do this. So I, I, it, the point I would make uh, about uh, the COVID-19 success, given the initial criminal delay uh, in Britain, the sort of denialism, similar thing, in China, but what to me was significant about the COVID-19 success is that it owed absolutely nothing uh, to the market. Uh, this wasn't drug companies um, doing it on the basis of profit. I'm sure governments threw money at some companies, um, but precisely it was government intervention um, and volunteers. They volunteered, they didn't get paid uh, they gave their labor voluntarily to help out their fellow human beings. Okay, so that was one 
success that, as I said, owes nothing to Tory party uh, philosophy. Um, uh, Brexit owes to me nothing about, uh, you know, Adam Smith and the market and um, the interests of capital, but everything to overweening um, um, ambition. And, you know, I, I, myself, you know, I'm sort of forced, and again, you can read the Financial Times and I'm sure other such uh, journals that were asking themselves, what's happened to our Tory party? Once upon a time, we used to control the Tory party. The Tory party would obediently act in the interests of collective big business. Uh, that's no longer the case, they now mourn. And I think there are a number of um, explanations to it. It's partially, I'm sure, uh, new legislation uh, in terms of um, companies um, not being able to donate money in the way that they could uh, donate in the past, but it's also got something to do with the decline of uh, British capitalism and the much more cosmopolitan nature of British capitalism uh, now. And hence, uh, if you actually look at the finances of the Tory party today, uh, they owe very little, if anything, in fact, nothing, uh, as they did once in the 60s to Barclays Bank, VP, the big breweries, uh, much more to, um, you know, rogue millionaires and more likely nowadays billionaires led to death uh, uh, comes to mind. Um, but there's been a shift. Um, so there's been a decline in terms of British ownership of British capital, uh, a rise of foreign um, ownership. Um, and as a result of that, uh, we see some, not a, not a, schism but a disjuncture uh, between the interests of British capitalism um, and uh, the Tory party, their preferred uh, party uh, of government and uh, the Labour Party certainly under Corbyn uh, was not something they would trust and even if you take um, Keir Starmer's Labour Party well it still has the trade union link doesn't it and therefore by definition you know all things being equal uh, business prefers a Tory government uh, to a Labour government um, any day. OK, but what did it uh, for Johnson? Uh, there's been a whole series of um, incidents, um, as we all know. I suppose the most uh, damaging in terms of public opinion was um, Partygate, uh, parties happening in 10 Downing Street, people getting drunk in Downing Street when... Uh, the government would be going on TV, radio and telling people, you know, not to meet loved ones, uh, not to visit dying uh, loved ones in hospital, um, um, even. Meanwhile, uh, they parted. And of course, we had the incident with uh, Dominic Cummings. Um, I'm only going out to test my eyes and uh, all the rest of it. But I think the final blow, the decisive uh, blow happened uh, only um, a matter of days ago, uh, and you went from, you know, Johnson being in trouble, but in my view, at least, in a trouble that at least conceivably he could dig himself out of. Um, I, if you take the vote of confidence, which he won, narrowly won, I'm sure that surprised him, it surprised me how narrow it was. Uh, what were the numbers? 149 against him, uh, 211 um, uh, for him. So 
pretty bad, surely, 40% or thereabouts of your own, you know, um, MPs uh, against you. And remember, you have around about 100 ministers, junior ministers and um, parliamentary private secretaries, the lowest rank of, um, you know, aspirants uh, to become uh, ministers. So these people should should be loyal uh, to the government uh, if they want to keep uh, their jobs. Um, so he, he won, but won very narrowly. But in my view, at least, um, there was the possibility of events happening either abroad or domestically uh, that could rescue um, um, his, his position. Uh, but of course, it wasn't to be. And I think the, the final blow wasn't struck, of course, uh, by some um, Remainer plot or ambitious uh, ministers coordinating or anything like that. The final blow was uh, Lord Simon um, MacDonald, and he was the former uh, permanent undersecretary um, of state for foreign affairs. In other words, someone who'd worked with Boris Johnson uh, when he was um, foreign minister. And when it came um, to um, this story about Pincher um, assaulting two men, I can't remember the name of, was it the Clarendon? I can't remember. Anyway, wherever this incident uh, took place, um, MacDonald said that uh, Johnson knew um, uh, about uh, this. He'd been warned uh, that th this, uh, this guy Pincher had a previous uh, record. Um, and of course, what, <laughs> what we saw uh, was ministers going around the TV stations, going um, on the radio, uh, swearing blind uh, that Johnson didn't know anything about any previous um, allegations. Well, maybe it was sheer incompetence. Uh, maybe Boris Johnson's relationship with the truth is so tenuous that what matters is what he says, um, not actually uh, what the truth uh, is. In other words, it's, you know, what I say uh, uh, is the truth. Either way, um, you had uh, ministers uh, forced to recant, um, you know, utterly uh, humiliated. And basically, that's when the government just started coming apart at the seams. I can't remember how many ministers had resigned, um, uh, uh, you know, at the bitter end. My memory, for what it's worth, is something like 40. I don't think we'd seen anything uh, like it. We'd seen resignations before, but not on this scale and not in this uh, uh, time uh, frame. So I have to say that um, when we were editing uh, The Weekly Worker, um, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, um, I was uh, convinced that by 10 o'clock, you know, I was you know, waiting for the 10 o'clock news that Johnson would have announced that he's going to make a statement and that was going to be the end. Nothing happened. Um, but it was obvious. It was obvious. Um, I don't know who went to him in, in the end. Wasn't it, you know, a combination of um, various remaining cabinet ministers, but including his new newly appointed um you know, Chancellor of the Exchequer uh, going to him and the game is uh, up. Either way, um, 
about 10 o'clock, I think it was. Again, this is working on the weekly worker. The news comes in and listening to the, you know, the radio. And uh, we are busily rewriting our, um, what was the original headline? Hanging by a thread um, story so that it became going, going, gone. I did look at a Socialist Worker uh, this week and uh, they, clever headline, Charlie Kimber, editor of um, Socialist Worker. Clearly they went to press uh, before the news came through and they, their line was, uh, get him out. Um, which if he'd resigned and um, handed over to the deputy, uh, Dominic Rabb, uh, that wouldn't have worked. But given Boris Johnson has decided at least, well, that's how things stand at the moment, to stay on until September when the Tory election to replace him uh, is done and dusted, um, it wasn't a bad headline. Um, either way, uh, again, showing, you know, how dangerous these things are. Uh, clearly, the editor of the Socialist Views uh, paper decided to stay completely clear um, um, of the issue and just led with uh, the RMT uh, rail strikes being a jolly good uh, idea. That was playing it safe. Um, so, yeah, we got it right. <laughs> um, um, if, if we'd had hanging by a thread, um, that could have been embarrassing. Um, but anyway, um, he's gone. Whether he can survive until uh, December remains an open question. I'm sure the Labour Party uh, will be um, moving a vote of no confidence. And, um, you know, you should expect the Greens or the Green, Lib Dems, SNP. Um, and who knows? Will the Tories, will there be Tories who want to get rid of him finally and put in um, the deputy? I don't know, but it's far from inconceivable. So um, he might want to hang on um, until September, uh, but there's a good chance uh, that uh, his 80 majority uh, could actually um, vanish uh, in a no confidence motion uh, under these circumstances. Okay, I think it's worthwhile and uh, this could be out of date. Uh, so this is me um, looking up the potential replacements last night. Today I hear that there are eight uh, candidates, but I've got listed 10. Uh, so there are clearly others waiting to get their nominations or to formally declare. Um, some of them are mildly um, interesting, and um, so I'll comment on a couple of them. Uh, Tom Tugendhout um, is worthwhile commenting on. He is, as far as I know, someone who's not only a backbencher, uh, but has always been a backbencher. He's, I think, head of the Foreign Affairs uh, Committee and certainly is a Cold War warrior uh, when it comes to present day Russia, but crucially uh, China. Uh, that's where he's, uh, you know, made his name. He pretends to be or purports, it puts himself over as a one nation Tory, which you could say um, is sort of Boris Johnson uh, territory. But 
um, not insignificantly, he also declares himself to be a soft Brexiteer. Um, and that could be interesting um, in terms of what I'll say uh, later. Uh, but he's very much an outsider. But that is an advantage because uh, he can put himself over to the Tory uh, electorate first round, remember, is the Parliamentary Conservative Party, but also um, if he's successful into the second round, he'll be putting himself over as someone who's untainted uh, by Boris Johnson. Now, again, I've not got a clue uh, what the mood out there is in um, membership land. Uh, I, I, I don't know. Clearly, Boris Johnson was their darling. Um, you know, when it came to um, electing him a leader, you know, he won massively and uh, clearly they adored him. Um, yes, he's purged the uh, parliamentary party, but as we saw in the vote of confidence, um, you know, the love affair with Boris Johnson, at least in the parliamentary party, is long over. And certainly when it comes to a general election, um, you would have thought that the Tory, you know, the Tory, Tory MPs want to keep their seats, uh, don't want to be campaigning on Boris Johnson and his record. They want to be campaigning around a new face and saying that's behind us. That was a, a previous um, regime. This is all new, new, new. So don't dismiss Tom Tugendhat. Jeremy Hunt, former health minister. Um, he's also, wasn't he? He was also foreign secretary. That's right as well. I remember him more as a health secretary, not just because of the junior doctor's strike, but also he was the one that when it came to Operation Cygnus, uh, this was uh, some wargaming exercise that the health department carried out. If Britain was struck by a mysterious disease from the east, uh, a, um, a virus, and he actually called the exercise off because the health service collapsed and uh, didn't follow that up with um, refinancing the health service, didn't abandon um, Blair's just-in-time version of um, hospitals, i.e. you don't have a massive um, or significant spare capacity because that's just a waste of resources, isn't it? Well, except when you get a pandemic, Tony. Um, anyway. Uh, he's running. I don't think he's got a chance myself. Uh, why? Uh, because uh, first time round, although he's now reconciled to Brexit, first time round, he was a Remainer. And I don't see the Tory rank and file going for a, a Remainer. And I'm very sceptical even that the Parliamentary Conservative Party uh, would go for a Remainer. As I say, he's now recanted, or not recanted, he's now a soft uh, Brexiteer, but I, I, I don't myself fancy his chances. On the other hand, you know, you've got to look at these people and when they're, although they're standing to become leader of the Conservative Party and therefore Prime Minister, what some of them are also campaigning for is to be noticed uh, and therefore they're standing actually as candidates to be let back in uh, to the cabinet or let in uh, to the cabinet. So my version, at least of Jeremy Hunt, is that he, he wants to show that he's got support and therefore he deserves to be let back in um, under the new regime, whoever is leading it. You know, the formula might be, well, this is a cabinet of all talents and therefore all factions of the Tory party. So he's mapping out a position on the left flank of the Tory party 
uh, and therefore uh, membership of a future cabinet. At least that's my uh, version of it. We've got Penny Mordaunt, arch uh, Brexiteer, social liberal, um, apparently a champion of lesbian and gay rights, um, but a hard right winger um, uh, at the same time. She has been spoken about as being one of the leading um, contenders. We also have Savid Javid, a, a disciple of Anne Rand, um, you know, of um, cooperation is bad, <laughs> sort of economic doctrine, selfishness is good. You know, Gordon Gecko, anyone see that film? That's uh, the nature of that philosophy, which is very popular apparently in the United States. I never realized until I did a little bit of research how worryingly popular um, that version of capitalism uh, actually is. We have Zawahwe, uh, we have Sunak, we have Liz Truss, um, let me carry on, Sue Braverman, Kemi Bedock, Grant Shapps. When I look at these people, what they all seem to be saying, all the latter ones, is uh, lower taxes. That seems to be uh, the mantra uh, that they're coming um, out with. All I would say is there's no, no one obvious, at least to me, uh, in that pack uh, who I would say, um, well, this is obvious. This is obvious who the um, Parliamentary Conservative Party will choose, either as number one or number two. I haven't got a clue. Uh, it doesn't seem that there's an obvious heir or successor. Maybe with Grant Chaps, uh, Transport Minister, you've got the only one that would, uh, let me have a look, First Division, I don't know what that's all about. I know, yes, I agree, disastrous NHS, yes, 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 of course, of course, of course. But the only one I can see that actually could be remotely, if there's any such thing, and I don't think there is, a Johnsonite, it, it would be Grant Chaps, because he hasn't resigned and he hasn't threatened Johnson. At least that's my understanding of it. So maybe he's, again, positioning himself uh, to be, you know, I, I'm standing on what was good uh, in the Boris Johnson tradition. So levelling up, getting Brexit done, government action uh, when it's needed, that sort of type thing. But there isn't really uh, a Johnson philosophy in the way that you might have described uh, Thatcher or for that matter before that, uh, Edward Heath, you know, the sort of convergence um, of lib labism. Um, with Lib Lab Conism, um, sort of all around this social democratic consensus of the late 40s, 50s into the 1960s. You know, you could call it Keynesianism if you want. Either way, um, you know, what distinguishes Johnson, as I've argued before, is just naked um, ambition and naked um, um, opportunism. Okay, so just a couple of points on that pack, I think is worthwhile making. As I said, I have listened to the news today and I, you know, eight candidates, but I've got 10. And what's worthwhile noting about them is that out of those 10, four are women and five uh, are what is called nowadays people of color. Um, and um, uh, from, from the point of view of the left, I think there's something uh, that we could learn here, believe it or not, from the Tories. 
uh, because we've been through the experience, at least with our communist platform, of that monstrosity of an organization called Left Unity that had, I don't know how long their rules and their regulation were, but it, I'm, you know, I'm not talking about volumes, but page after page after page, elaborate quota uh, systems, you know, that, uh, you know, 50% of all spokespeople have to be women. 50% have to be this, 50% have to be that. Um, we've also had some association of that silly organization, uh, Labour Representation Committee, that thought itself at one point uh, a replacement to the Labour Party. And, uh, you know, so weak has it become uh, that if you put yourself forward for their leadership as a woman, you just automatically <laughs> elected. It's crazy. And the idea that this strikes a blow for equality is delusional. Uh, and the idea uh, that you would have as much respect for someone who was automatically elected, as opposed to someone who actually was elected with votes, uh, to me is uh, delusional. And there you are, the Tory party with no quotas. Um, you have them um, uh, being led by Thatcher coming through the sexism um, of the Tory party, which was pretty rampant uh, in the 1960s into the 1970s, let alone uh, before that. You have the election of uh, second female prime minister, Theresa May, uh, and yes, look at this um, uh, list of uh, potential replacements to Boris Johnson um, and, and not a quota uh, to be seen. Now, I'm in favour myself of, um, you know, when you stand candidates uh, for general election, looking at how your party uh, comes over. I'm not insensitive, but the idea that quotas liberate people of colour or women or gay people um, I, I think is delusional. Um, anyway, um, I thought I'd make uh, that point. Okay. I also think that the chances are that um, whoever is elected, as long as they have a honeymoon period, I well knew uh, this isn't the continuation of Boris Johnson. This is a new chapter. The Tory party has um, been born again I think there's a very high chance of an early general election. Um, in other words, whatever the fixed term Parliament Act says, um, that is going to be voted down. Uh, they're going to abolish the fixed term Parliament Act if the opinion polls are right. And we should expect opinion polls to go uh, from showing uh, the Labour Party with some sort of lead as high as 11% in some uh, polls, we should expect um, a new prime minister to enjoy some sort of honeymoon period. And then, uh, although this isn't a presidential system, they, you know, people will be talking about um, a mandate, even though it's just nonsense. We've got a parliamentary system. Um, nonetheless, that's what I would expect. And this really uh, then raises up um, what we were talking about last week. And this is Keir Starmer's clever, in my view, just in terms of um, parliamentary and electoral tactics. It's not I agree with it, quite the opposite. But his um, basically taking um, Tony Blair's triangulation 
um, strategy uh, and applying it to Brexit. In other words, what uh, Keir Starmer has done is adopted a soft Brexit approach. He, he accepts uh, Brexit. And really, we now have, in terms of what the middle ground is, uh, at least when it comes to that debate, we have Theresa May's uh, Brexit deal as the centre ground. In other words, you know, our argument is uh, that this is what triangulation uh, leads to. It leads to the centre of politics moving right, right, right. And if you look at it with Tony Blair, the example uh, that I would give, and you could give others, is the anti-trade union laws. He accepted Thatcher's anti-trade union laws uh, as a given. He wasn't going to water them down. He wasn't going to abolish them. He was going to accept them. And that was true, you know, with uh, council houses uh, and a whole load of um, um, other uh, uh, questions. So if we have a new uh, prime minister, but a new prime minister uh, that is determined to go for a Theresa May uh, option, um, that um, is a problem as far as Keir Starmer's Labour Party uh, is concerned. Either way, I'll stick with my argument, uh, and that was from the beginning of uh, Keir Starmer as leader of the Labour Party. Um, I was never convinced, I was always of the exact opposite view. The idea that we kept being told on the left that Keir Starmer isn't interested in beating the Tories, he isn't interested in becoming prime minister, apparently because of statistics, because of the, the gap between where the Labour Party is and where it needs to go to get a parliamentary majority. It's never been done before. Well, things have never been done before until they've been done. Uh, <laughs> it's just stupid. And the idea uh, that, um, you know, what obsesses Keir Starmer's mind is the left of the Labour Party. You must be kidding. The left of the Labour Party is being broken. All you need to do is look at the threat uh, that he was issuing against the spineless, spineless 11 over NATO and Ukraine and stop the war coalition and just see them collapse. Uh, the fact that uh, he keeps, for purely symbolic reasons, Jeremy Corbyn outside He's not been expelled outside uh, the parliamentary Labour Party. He's, he's suspended and therefore he cannot stand as an official Labour candidate when the next election is finally called. But uh, as to the rank and file, he just rides roughshod uh, over them. You cannot now, in a, um, um, a CLP, a constituency Labour Party meeting, as I understand it, you cannot mention Jeremy Corbyn's suspension. You cannot protest uh, against it, let alone when it comes to denying uh, that Labour Party has ever suffered from a significant problem of anti-Semitism, either under Keir Starmer, but of course under uh, Jeremy Corbyn. You cannot say that that's a lie. You cannot even say that that's exaggerated. Indeed, under Jeremy Corbyn himself, I think treacherously, uh, they actually had this offence of denialism. And if you denied it, uh, you were somehow, um, you know, complicit in something that wasn't real. It's a bit like, you know, in Salem, uh, that if you said, there are, but there aren't any witches, that itself becomes 
uh, a charge of, well, you must be in the pay of the devil. You must be under the spell of the devil and we're going to burn you. And that is the actual situation in the Labour Party. So the left is marginal and morally broken uh, at the present time. It might recover. It might not. That's an open uh, question. But Keir Starmer is not losing sleep at night worrying about the Labour Party. He might have been worrying about uh, being fined by the police in Durham. That's possible. He might have been completely relaxed because he knew all the way along uh, that he'd done no wrong. But clearly his decision uh, to say I'd step down had got nothing to do with anything other than his calculation um, about um, winning, leading Labour Party in a general election and winning and not resigning. That was the uh, calculation. Uh, and he took some time, didn't he, to come up with this uh, particular approach. Anyway, it's not the left um, that uh, keeps him awake. Uh, he wants to become prime minister and we shouldn't rule that one uh, out. And we, we don't need to um, speculate about coalition governments. We've got a first past the post system and uh, usually uh, that produces a majority. And if it doesn't produce a majority, usually what happens is the, the general election directly after that, because general elections are usually called, if you've not got a majority pretty quickly, the next general election sorts that one out. Now, I try to limit myself to an hour. I know I speak an awful lot, um, and I'm going to stick to that. So I've taken three quarters of an hour to deal with Boris Johnson, the Tory party. I think it was worthwhile doing it. It's not, you know, it's not every day you see a prime minister fall. Uh, it's not every day you see a government party with an 80 majority uh, in such turmoil. Uh, and suffering from such lack of uh, strategic uh, direction. Okay, so I'm going to whip through uh, my last two items. I think I can do it. And that's Ukraine um, and then Sri Lanka. Um, so I'm going to speed up, not my delivery, uh, but how much I cover of these subjects. So I'm going to do it more in note form. Okay, in Ukraine from Kiev, we have uh, the figure, I don't know whether to believe it, take it whichever way you want, but the figure that they're putting out is that uh, the Russian side in terms of military losses have suffered 37,200 uh, deaths. As I say, I've got not a clue how accurate that would be. All you can say, I think with some degree of safety, is that they've suffered substantial losses. So I think you could hazard uh, that in you, and you'd expect that, that uh, Russian forces in Ukraine have suffered more casualties than Soviet forces in Afghanistan uh, suffered. We should expect that because what we're dealing is with a conventional war. Uh, we're not dealing with a guerrilla uh, uh, struggle, you know, um, a low level, a lower level uh, of uh, warfare. Uh, we've also seen Russian forces advance painfully, 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 but they've advanced. Um, we've seen the uh, province of Luhansk, to all intents and purposes, uh, fall into Russian hands. If one wants to use the word liberation, uh, you know, OK, if you want to. Uh, personally, I just think it's been taken over. Um, but what you're dealing with there 
at least is a sizable chunk of the population. I don't know which side of the original line, but either way, historically, these people were, are Russian. And that also applies to, to, to Donetsk, which is, we would assume, is the next target of Putin. He said that Russian forces will now be resting and regrouping. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't expect missiles and certain ground attacks. Uh, but clearly, uh, Russian forces will be regrouping. New forces, fresh forces will be sent in. Um, uh, other forces will be withdrawn uh, for rest and recreation. Um, Putin says that his forces have barely begun. Mm, I'm a bit skeptical about that. But on the other hand, what are his aims? He's talked about negotiations and what he has required and threatening Ukraine, if you don't go for this, um, things will get worse for you. And what he's offered, at least in my understanding, is we take Donbass, that's the two Russian majority areas in the east, uh, and we take um, Crimea, which again is clearly a majority uh, Russian population and uh, was historically a part of Russia until Khrushchev, for <laughs> whatever reasons, gave 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 it to uh, Ukraine uh, in reward for its role in World War II. <laughs> so, so historically, yes, it's been part of Russia. That was the case in the Soviet Union. And as I said, a clear, I think it's an 80% uh, Russian uh, population um, in Crimea. Anyway, we want that. And of course, in Crimea, it's not just about the population. Here's their historic naval base gives them access to the warm waters of the Mediterranean via the Black Sea. OK, um, we could also hazard a guess that maybe uh, um, if Ukraine doesn't settle, um, Putin will then, having taken the east, will then shift to what could be called phase three of the war. And that would be driving on in the south where they've largely been static, even maybe conceding some ground, and drive on to Odessa all the way uh, to Moldova, and therefore seal uh, Ukraine in making it landlocked. Now, whether they then go for a phase four and drive up or drive down or drive that way uh, on, on Kiev, I don't know. Uh, either way, what we have in the shape of Biden um, and still Johnson, while he's there in number 10, is the determination not only to stop Putin, uh, but to drive Russian forces out of Ukraine. And um, it's no secret, uh, trigger uh, regime change um, uh, in Moscow uh, itself. Now, whether that's replacement of Putin as an individual um, or something more radical, uh, events themselves uh, will determine. But clearly, um, you know, we have various strategists in um, the United States that have got their idea, um, you know, um, on the sort of plan, the sort of plan uh, that Brzezinski and uh, Carter uh, mapped out in his great chess game. Uh, and that's the dismemberment of Russia uh, into three separate, you know, um, um, countries. So a Siberia, a Western part, a Southern 
uh, uh, part, which would be subordinate uh, to the United States. Okay, just quickly uh, to wind up on Ukraine. Uh, I don't know whether this is the same issue, uh, but there's news of Zelensky sacking five ambassadors. And the one that I've read about is the ambassador to Berlin. Uh, let me get his name, Andre Melnick. Um, and what's interesting about Melnick is that um, he's not only insulted uh, Schultz, uh, the new chancellor uh, in Germany, calling him various names, uh, but he's also defended um, the heritage and the record of one Stefan Banderer. Um, again, I don't know about the other four ambassadors. Uh, but this caused something of a stink in Germany. Shouldn't be unexpected. Um, but he's basically said that in terms of the accusations being made against the organization of Ukrainian nationalists, that's Bandera's um, um, organization, uh, the allegations that it um, committed massacres um, against Jews, but crucially uh, against Poles, quote unquote, there's no proof of it. Well, there's plenty of damn proof um, of it. It's one of these things you could look up surely in any history book other than a history book, presumably written by a far right Ukrainian nationalist and you'll find all the information uh, that you need. And we're talking about big, big, big massacres. So the figures I've read, you know, uh, 100,000 and that sort of figure. And of course, this wasn't done um, independently uh, by the organization of um, Ukrainian nationalists. This was done uh, when Bandler was acting as a stooge um, of Nazi uh, Germany. Um, basically, though, he, he carried out his uh, anti-Polish purge on his own initiative. Um, now, you can imagine in Germany, you know, when they precisely said that uh, the Nazi past uh, is never again, uh, we completely disassociate ourselves from it, how embarrassing uh, that must have been for the Schultz uh, government, and therefore uh, for a Zelensky who's been badgering uh, Schultz and the Germans to supply heavy weaponry, advanced um, tech uh, weaponry. Um, I'm, I'm presuming that that's uh, the reason uh, for his uh, replacement. But um, I'm sort of guessing uh, there. Worthwhile just saying, um, again, I have looked this stuff up, um, that in Ukraine today, especially if you go to the West to Lvov, but I also think uh, in Kiev, what you'll find is street names, bridge names um, after this um, uh, Brandler um, collaborator. It's true he fell out with the Germans, but then they brought him back at the end uh, of the war. So I personally wouldn't describe him as a Nazi, uh, but I'd just say he's a fascist, a Ukrainian fascist. Uh, that's my uh, description um, of him. But what he had in common with Hitler is that he was an exterminator. He wanted to eliminate human beings of a particular sort, and that was determined by ethnicity. Uh, not politics. Um, 
anyway, uh, the point I'd also carry on to make is that you can uh, also find stamps, Ukrainian stamps with his image on it. You can find statues of him in Ukraine. And you'll also have a national holiday in his honor. So, you know, when um, Putin talks about Nazis, uh, yeah, I'm going, well, yeah, you know, it's hyperbole, but, but nonetheless, uh, it's not groundless. And in terms of, um, you know, Zelensky himself, I mean, I, I don't know how many times he's done it, but didn't he um, presumably turn up in the Greek parliament on some sort of video um, um, link, but alongside him was a member of the Azov uh, battalion. I know that there undoubtedly are some Nazis uh, in it, but what, that, what distinguishes that battalion in particular, or is it a regiment now? Whatever it is now, what distinguishes it is of course its affinity with the organization of um, Ukrainian nationalists with, uh, yeah, uh, homegrown fascism. Um, anyway, I thought that was just worthwhile flagging about. Um, it should also be said on the other hand, uh, that Putin himself is a far-right politician with links uh, to Russian uh, fascists, including ones who bizarrely, how on earth you can think these things in Russia that lost about 20 million dead to the Nazis. Um, you know, that would include some people who are pro-Nazi. Uh, yes, unbelievable. Okay, lastly, this is... Um, my last three minutes, you've seen the news, you've seen the pictures, presidential palace in um, Colombo has been stormed. The demonstrators say they aren't leaving until the president resigns. Worthwhile putting uh, this regime in context. This is the former military men who turned politician. These were the victors against the Tamil Tigers. There was a vicious, horrible, horrible, uh, chauvinist um, civil war uh, fought in Sri Lanka um, against the Tamils. The Tamils, I think, historically were brought in by the British. Um, and what you had is a chauvinist reaction uh, to them. Um, and so, yeah, a long drawn out uh, war which the Sri Lankans, I shouldn't say the Sri Lankans, I should say the Sinhalese chauvinists uh, won. And this is the regime uh, that comes uh, from that. What's due to replace, because we're talking about the former prime minister, we're talking about the existing president, we're talking about parliament, what, what they're going to put in place, uh, I don't know. I just don't know enough about the present mood. People are angry, there's no doubt about that. Their living standards have been cut. Um, you know, people have been told they can't use cars. Um, you know, if they could get hold of petrol, prices have shot through the roof. Uh, the country is defaulted uh, on its foreign debt. And unlike um, some, if I've actually looked up, this isn't mainly to the Chinese. It's not a debt colony to China. The biggest, uh, um, um, you know, amount owed is actually uh, to Japan. I don't know who number two is, but China is number uh, three. But I just wanted to flag this, and maybe some comrades here will know more than I do. So if uh, you do know, just worthwhile uh, telling the rest of the, um, uh, the forum. Uh, 
from my memory, uh, this would go back to the 60s and 70s. Sri Lanka was very left wing. Uh, the president that I remember, or was she prime minister, but was Bandra Naika, and she was the wife of uh, the, you know, the, I don't know, the first, I think, the first post-independence um, um, Sri Lankan or Salon, as they, as we called it uh, at, at the time. Um, either way, you know, she would position herself um, on the left as being part of the non-aligned movement. Whether she entered into a coalition government with the left, I, I don't know. But uh, it is worth noting uh, that there's only, as far as I know, ever been two mass Trotskyist parties in the world. One was in Bolivia in the 50s, uh, and the other one was in Sri Lanka. And um, what did uh, the left, and this includes the Communist Party um, in Sri Lanka, um, was its willingness to go along with nationalism. And um, nationalism in Sri Lanka led to chauvinism. And uh, the working class was split along ethnic lines. Uh, and basically you saw um, it therefore disappear. And the reason why I'm um, saying this is because we still see uh, the same thing happening. Um, uh, Anne McShane um, has got an article in this week's uh, paper looking at the SWP's fellow thinkers in Ireland, going along the route of the official communists from the mid 1930s, you know, the idea that the left goes into a coalition government and shifts it to the left. Well, all of history has shown us it's the opposite. It's the left that gets dragged to the right. And in the process, it betrays its base and the working class either then abstain um, or vote for something else. Uh, but what's the point? Uh, voting left when you get a Sinn Féin government? What's the point of voting for the left when you get a Bandra Naika uh, uh, government, etc., etc., etc.? So far from this being clever politics, it's actually the politics of uh, liquidationism. And I just thought the, um, the, the mass Trotskyism of Salon stroke Sri Lanka was just worthwhile bringing in uh, to that discussion, given what's going on now, because you'll have some sections of the left saying now is our time uh, because the masses are on the street, because the masses have brought down a government. It doesn't mean that we're in 1917. Uh, for 1917, you require a Bolshevik party, which takes years and years of preparation, which takes a program, which takes cadre, a mass base. Anyway, I finished with that. Thank you, Stan. Sorry for running over by three minutes.